we've learned anything from these past couple of years, my fellow Americans, is that personal medical freedom and liberty are in crisis. America Out Loud Pulse brings together the top experts in healthcare-related fields to keep you a beat ahead. My big, fat, beautiful life, or is it? This is Dr. Marilyn Singleton, and welcome to America Out Loud Pulse. At its last count, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention estimated that 40% of U.S. adults aged 20 and over, 21% of teens, and 14% of preschoolers are obese. A December 2019 study that analyzed 26 years of body mass index data concluded that half of U.S. adults will be obese by 2030. Some 25% will be severely obese. That's a BMI of greater than 35. Less than 5% of adults get the recommended 30 minutes a day of physical activity. And even when people living in what they call food deserts had healthy food presented to them, only 10% change their ways of eating. So the annual medical cost, according to CDC, of obesity in the United States to Medicare and Medicaid and private insurers was $147 billion, and that was about 10 years ago. And this is much higher than people who were at healthier rates. So what do we have? We have obesity leading to the increased prevalence of type 2 diabetes worldwide. The saddest development for me is the cultural normalization of obesity with lingerie models, singers, and television shows celebrating fatness. Do we high-five people with other lifestyle-related conditions such as alcoholism, emphysema, or coronary artery disease? Of course we don't. This is something that also bugs me. The pharmaceutical companies spent $6 billion on direct-to-consumer prescription drug advertising in 2017, and many of the ads have type 2 diabetics frolicking around thanks to the drug company's magic pills. The way I look at it, the ads might as well say, pass the chocolate cupcakes with statin sprinkles drizzled with insulin. So today, we're going to talk about the causes of the obesity epidemic, and most importantly, what we, both doctors and patients, can do about it. I am so excited to have as my guest, Dr. Dan Weiss. He's an endocrinologist and physician nutrition specialist in St. George, Utah, with Intermountain Health. Dr. Weiss earned his medical degree at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas. He completed an internal medicine residency, followed by a fellowship in endocrinology and metabolism at the University of Iowa Hospitals in Iowa City. He is a diplomat of the American Board of Obesity Medicine. Also, Dr. Weiss has served as a manuscript reviewer for the Annals of Internal Medicine, the Cleveland Clinic Journal, and many others. 
He's been the principal investigator for 90 clinical research projects, mostly for persons with diabetes, and his work has been published in many medical journals. Now, we have to remember uh, that his opinions on the podcast are his and do not reflect the views of Intermountain Health, his employer. This doctor is an expert in this field, and I'm just honored to have him on the show. Welcome to the show, Dr. Weiss. Thank you, Dr. Singleton. Thank you for having me. Well, let's just get started. This is such an important issue, and I know a lot of the listeners out there have a lot of questions about obesity. So let's just get started with what do you think, excuse me, is the cause of this worldwide obesity, and specifically in the United States? Well, that, of course, is is a superb question and one for which we don't really have the answer. There's a lot that's been discussed about that. Uh, Some of it relates to the ready availability of lower cost, calorie dense foods and beverages. Some of the cause relates to markedly reduced activity. We can drive everywhere. We can drive even into the pharmacy and pick up our meds for our obesity related diseases. We don't have to get out of the car. We can drive to the fast food restaurant, get high calorie foods, and uh, some. So some of it's that. Some of it's the genetic factors. Some of it may be related to changes in our gut bacteria, our so-called gut microbiome. Uh, they, there's a lot of work that needs to be done on this, and we're, we really don't have the answers. But I think it's probably multifactorial. What would make our gut microbiome change? That's the normal bacteria that live inside of us. We all have tons and what millions and billions of bacteria and viruses and stuff that are in our bodies all the time, but they don't necessarily make us sick. So what is it the foods we eat? What would make that microbiome change? That's possible. That and that again is a is a is a is a key question. Uh, some people have proposed that uh, perhaps trace amounts of pesticide residues that are in food might change your microbiome. Um, there's there's interestingly uh, that cor- uh, that re- relates to that is some of the effect of bariatric surgery, which we don't really know how it works, may relate to changes in the gut microbiome. So a lot of questions still there, uh, but it's, it is clear that the gut microbiome in obese people is different from the gut microbiome in people who are slim. Now, whether it's causal or not is another matter, but that's another question, but There are rodent findings that suggest that the gut microbiome actually may be uh, causal with regard to uh, weight changes. Well, you mentioned bariatric surgery, and this is slightly off, but just so people know what that is, um, I will admit that I watch a television show. uh, I can't remember which station it's on, whether it's the Learning Channel Um, 
called My 600-Pound Life, and it's about massively obese people, people who have their BMI 100 times of normal. And there's a doctor in Texas who does bariatric surgery. What kind of surgeries do they do to try to help out folks who are seriously overweight? So there's several surgeries. The most common one that's used now is a so-called sleeve gastrectomy, where they're restricting the size of the stomach and they're not changing the passage of nutrients uh, that are that's that normally occurs. So the older surgery was a gastric bypass where they would actually bypass an area of the in, intestine uh, and also make a smaller stomach. With that older surgery called the Roux-en-Y gastric bypass, uh, there's complications and there's poor absorption of certain nutrients that does not occur with the newer, simpler sleeve gastrectomy. Uh, but both of them can lead to substantial weight loss. So we're talking about 100 pounds or more. And uh, we talk about that and, and, and offer that as an option for people um, who have body mass indexes of 40 or higher, especially if they have comorbidities or that is diseases associated with their weight. But of course, the surgeons are encouraging us to consider those surgeries because they like to do surgery. Uh, in people <laughs> who well, are who have less severe obesity, and it's officially kind of uh, considered reasonable in people uh, who have struggled with weight and have body mass indexes of thirty-five or higher, along with diseases associated with their their weight, so-called comorbidities. Okay. Well, thank you. Now, a few years back, the AMA declared that obesity was a disease. So is obesity itself a disease, or is it a symptom of something else somebody has? Most physicians believe it's a, it is a chronic disease, and it causes other conditions. Yes, it's, it's a disease. There's no, no question. And body mass index is still a very good reflection of the severity of the weight problem. So uh, recently the AMA has said, oh, we should use something else. It's not a good measure. It It's still a good measure. It's, and it's weight in kilograms divided by height in meters squared, which is which is a hard calculation to do, but there are tables for to look that up and there's uh there's there's charts, uh there's apps for that. It's still uh a meaningful measurement. And it correlates with future risk of all those conditions that are associated with weight. The higher the body mass index or BMI, the increase in risk, the higher the risk of those so-called comorbidities, which are things like sleep apnea, heart, heart disease, heart attacks, high blood pressure, diabetes, fatty liver disease with with subsequent uh, risk of inflammation in the liver and risk of liver failure, actually, and liver cancer. Um, 
uh, joint problems. Many, many people have their knee replacements, uh, have to have a knee replacement, have that problem because they're carrying around that weight for years and their knees weren't decide, designed to do that. So those are some of the comorbidities associated with uh, obesity. Well, given all these things that can happen when you start to become severely overweight, why is it, do you think, and this is, you know, it's medical and sort of cultural question here, that it's being normalized and they have uh, folks on TV, always they're overweight, but they're very happy and and don't seem to see it as a problem. And to me, it shouldn't be normalized. We shouldn't make fun of people who are overweight, of course, or shame them, all the things. And they, you know, say, don't be a fat phobic and all this sort of stuff. Nobody wants that. But if it causes all these medical problems, why should people view it as sort of the normal state of affairs? I agree with you 100%. It should not be, it's not, it's a, it's a disease. It should not be minimized. Uh, and uh, just because we're not going to mock those people or uh, or make make fun of them, it's it remains a significant disorder that needs to be addressed. Well, it it really saddens me because there was a time when I feel like you could openly discuss that. And then, you know, you read that some doctors are even getting in trouble for telling the patient they need to lose weight. Now, admittedly, maybe some people have a communication problem and they haven't said it in a way that's acceptable. Um, But Facts are facts, as we say. And if you need to lose weight, you need to lose weight. I mean, there's even certain cancers that are associated with obesity. And so I I just feel like, what is it that it seems that society is trying to say, you know, and say, oh, well, that's part of diversity and it's somewhere on the scale, but it's our health doctor. I, what do we say? What do you say to people who say, well, they're just different? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. There are, there are, there are, well, of course, all your questions are, are good questions, but the, the, and there's been discussion about how to communicate the weight problem that the person has. And there's, there are papers written on this. How do we broach the subject People, the, uh, one one um, uh, point that's been revealed is that patients don't understand the term, the medical term, obesity. They often they may be fifty pounds overweight. They may have a BMI of thirty two, and you say, "Well, I'm not obese." <laughs> so you and so I, I I just point out to patients, it's not to mean not meant to be a term of abuse. It's a medical term that relates to this calculation. Um, and when I bring it up, I'll say, has, have, um, has weight been a, a, a challenge for you a long time? Or have you been struggling with your weight for a while? So weight, struggle, um, uh, that kind of thing, not using the term obesity. Uh, are others in your family heavy? 
those kinds of things uh, a way of perhaps more gently uh, bringing up the subject but it's it needs to be brought up and it's interesting that um, they've also looked at physicians uh, and this is correlates with other also uh, it correlates with other disease states so smoking doctors are less likely to bring up smoking with their patient and patients and doctors who are heavy or obese are less likely to bring it up with their patients also so there's a there's that challenge and then some doctors just don't feel comfortable bringing bringing the subject up but nonetheless it's a it's a serious condition especially in those people with higher bmis and it impacts on all these other disease states so when you're talking to someone with diabetes as i so often do these are people with type 2 diabetes as opposed to type 1 so type 2 diabetes is the more common diabetes and for 90 percent of those people weight is a problem well, there's so many things about this we have yet to discuss. And when we get back from the break, I do want you to explain the difference between type 1 and type 2 diabetes. And we'll talk about some of these drugs that people are using for type 2 diabetes. Right now, I do want to talk about a medication that has really helped me through the cold and flu season and through the COVID season, and that's Cofix RX. Uh, people who've listened before know what it is. It's a nasal spray, very simple idea. It's a mixture of iodine and xylitol, both of which are antiviral powerhouses. And you have to think of using Cofix RX as just squirt up the nose, kind of like an airbag in a car. If you can reduce the impact of all the viruses that we breathe in through our noses, which is how most of our respiratory infections start, this using the Cofix will reduce that impact and help keep us from getting sicker, get those viruses all the way down to your lungs. That's what we don't want. That's what Cofix helps us do. I have been using it for however long since COVID came out and this was invented uh, after people figured it out uh, several months into the COVID pandemic and been using it ever since. And it's been working very well for me. One of the things I like about it, it was invented in the USA and it's manufactured in the USA. So what could be better than that? So check it out. We've got a little Cofix button on our page. Click it on, read more about it, and see if it's right for you. How can you improve your odds of staying healthy? The answer is stay healthy with Cofix RX. Who's got time for a cold, strep, a flu, HRV, RSV, or COVID anyhow? Cofix has some great news. Besides being featured as a top five product in the drugstore news, we completed the protocol that you've heard Dr. McCullough talk about. Cofix RX is already famous for a powerful virus-hostile nasal solution, and now we have a throat spray too. Crush those nasty germs before they become a problem. With known antiviral support ingredients like povidone iodine, xylitol, and vitamin D3, you can feel a little safer. For a limited time, when you add the new Cofix RX throat spray to your order, you'll receive 25% off the entire purchase. 
Just click the Cofix RX banner on the America Out Loud website or store. Be sure to use promo code OUTLOUD25 at checkout. Don't forget, OUTLOUD25 at checkout. World-class care from doctors you can trust, all from the comfort of your home. That is One Wellness. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company designed the One Wellness membership to provide free monthly supplements and unlimited telemedicine access with doctors that share your values. Go to OutloudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month of One Wellness. Before the break, we were talking about oh, so many things, and doctor mentioned type 1 and type 2 diabetes, and so I'd like Dr. Weiss to explain the difference between the two kinds of diabetes. So type 1 diabetes is the less common form of diabetes. These are the two principal kinds of diabetes. There's, there's other kinds of diabetes, but the main types of diabetes are type 1 and type Two. So type 1 diabetes used to be called called juvenile onset diabetes, uh, but we now know it can occur in someone who's 80 years old. Uh, so the age or whether they're juvenile or adult, that's immaterial. What's important is that people with type 1 diabetes have had their immune system attacking their insulin-producing cells usually for years without their knowing it. And then those insulin producing cells eventually poop out, make virtually no insulin. And the person with type one diabetes uh, may be diagnosed with a high sugar, urinating a lot, drinking a lot and weight loss. Sometimes they have a, a disorder uh, called ketoacidosis, where they're really sick and they're vomiting. They have to be in the hospital and their blood is acid. But often that's not the case. They're not that kind of all of a sudden very sick. They just happen to have high sugars. The people with type 1 diabetes are more often younger, but age age, age can, is, not, again, not a key factor, key distinguishing factor. Type 1 diabetes tends to run in the family less than type 2 diabetes. And enough, and most of those people with type 1 diabetes uh, are, are not overweight. And even if they are, a lot of people are overweight and they can have be overweight and have type 1 diabetes. But those with type 1 diabetes, if they lost weight, it wouldn't help their sugars because they're making their main problem is they don't make enough insulin. So those people with type 1 diabetes, the, the principal treatment is insulin. And those are that's insulin given as injections. Uh, there's actually an inhaled version of mealtime insulin most people don't uh, aren't aware of. Uh, and there's but uh, those people, that's only for meals, but people with type 1 diabetes will need some insulin by injection for control of their glucose. Type two diabetes, which represents about 90% of diabetes, uh, it runs in the family more. And 90% of those people who have type two diabetes are heavy, they're overweight or obese. And if they succeed in losing weight, they often will improve their glucose. And the main problem with in 
people with type 2 diabetes, why they have high sugar is not because they don't have enough insulin, but their insulin doesn't work so well. And it works better as they lose weight, exercise, eat less, lose a little bit of weight. So, uh, and, and that in type 2 diabetes, there is no immune system attack on the insulin producing cells. Now, sometimes we see people, and this happens a lot, actually, it's, it, for, it, with, as endocrinologists, diabetes specialists, hormone and gland specialists, we will see people, we, we, we look at, we're, we're just not sure. You know, gee, do they have type 1 or type 2? And there's a test you can do, and a lot of doctors just aren't aware of the, the best test to do to distinguish the two. Uh, the, the test that is the key test to do is to measure antibodies, because that comes from the immune system, antibodies to those insulin-producing cells. If you have them, what do you think? They would have type 1 diabetes because it's an immune system. So nine, about 85 90% of the people with type 1 diabetes have antibodies to their insulin-producing cells. It's actually a special test. It's called uh, GAD antibodies, G-A-D. It stands for glutamic acid decarboxylase. Uh, so it's G-A-D, anti-GAD antibodies. And if someone has a lot of antibodies, they have type, they pretty much have type 1 diabetes as the cause of their high sugars. Type 2 diabetes, they don't have those antibodies. So you might say, well, what difference does it make? Well, there's a whole slew of medications, and we're going to talk about some of those. For type 2 diabetes, they don't work for type 1. Type 1, you need insulin. That's the key treatment. Well, since you mentioned a test, I'll kind of jump over and ask you, um, what tests, you hear people talking about A1C levels. That seems to be what people are doing to test for diabetes or fasting blood sugars. So you're saying to distinguish between the two to do the antibody tests. Well, when somebody goes into their primary care doctor's office and to get their blood drawn, what tests are people generally getting to test for diabetes? Right. So the antibodies wouldn't be uh, the, 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 the reason to do the antibodies is if you're not sure what type of diabetes a person has. Usually you can tell, but sometimes you can't. If someone has had a high sugar for five years and they're significantly overweight and their dad had diabetes and they're and they they haven't had that ketoacidosis, they're usually type two. Uh, if they're not overweight and they just had di they were diagnosed just a few months ago and it's not in the family, hmm, that person sounds more like a type one person. And that antibody test should be up. But in either case, the diagnosis of diabetes itself is easily, most easily made by just a fasting glucose. And normal fasting glucose, strictly normal, is below 100. But uh, we, we, we use the cutoff of 126 or higher for diabetes. So someone hasn't eaten anything for eight hours, their fasting glucose is above 126. That's not, not normal. Diabetes cutoff for that glucose is 140. So uh, um, 140, I'm sorry, after meals. But one, if they're between 100 and 126, that's a little bit up. That's called impaired fasting glucose. But if they're 128 confirmed on repeat, they technically have diabetes. 
Now, sometimes people will use an A1C, the hemoglobin A1C measurement, as an additional test. They don't have to be fasting for that hemoglobin A1C measurement. So the hemoglobin A1C is uh, it's complicated, but what that relates to the red blood cell and the hemoglobin in the red blood cell. So hemoglobin carries oxygen. It's in the red blood cells. So if you're anemic, you have low red blood cells. The red blood cells are the key carrier of the oxygen. Everyone has some sugar or glucose stuck onto their hemoglobin in the red blood cells. Those red blood cells last about 90 days. And so during the lifespan of the red blood cells, before new ones are made, you have some glucose stuck onto the hemoglobin in the red blood cells. And that glucose stuck on there is called the hemoglobin A1C. The, high, the higher the glucose has been during that 90-day period of time, the higher the A1C. So normally that hemoglobin A1C is below six. And when people have a hemoglobin A1C consistently above six and a half, they usually have diabetes. And that's, but there's a little bit of, it's a little harder to do good A1C measurement. I usually use use the, the fasting glucose. And if someone is 130, 134 on a, on a repeat, they have diabetes even if their A1C is not high. There are some people who are in that range of 100 to 125. So their glucose isn't really normal, but it's not high enough to say you have they have diabetes and their A1C might be 6.2. So those people we call, we say they have impaired fasting glucose. Now, doctor, uh, I'm going to interrupt for a second, just to ask about age with those tests. Is there a natural, and and I'm saying, you know, I guess natural in a way to say, is it okay if you're older to have a higher number or should, you know, okay. That's because some people, you know, they blame everything. Well, I'm getting older, so Mm -hmm. I expect things not to be right. But that's one thing. It's not like your joints getting a little old. Right. That, that shouldn't get old. Okay. So that's important for people to know. So don't blame a high blood sugar on old age because it's going to happen to all of us, not the blood sugar, the old well, age. <laughs> right. And, and as we get older, we may tend to make less insulin and then we lose muscle also, unless we're really exercising regularly, toning our muscles, staying fit. Because, and as we lose muscle, are we're we're less responsive. Our tissues are less responsive, or uh, to the or less sensitive to the insulin we make. So that would mean, uh, and we make less insulin as we get older. So that means there's an increased likelihood of getting diabetes, type two diabetes now, as we get older. So what can we do to reduce that risk? Well, you could we could try to not gain weight, and we can stay active. And there's data now that's pretty clear that doing so, even just not gaining weight and losing even a few pounds if we've gained it, and and just modest exercise, walking 30 minutes five times a week, for example, reduces the risk of diabetes by 50% or more in those people whose blood sugar is kind of borderline or have that impaired fasting glucose. Wow, this is such remarkable information and things that we should all take 
to heart because I'm glad you mentioned walking because that's something that anybody can do. And I'll tell you, I grew up in a bad neighborhood and it's one of the things that people talk about when it comes to healthcare disparities. If you live in a bad neighborhood, you you can't go out for that after dinner walk. You don't want to get hit by a drive-by. But walking, you can do inside your own house, your own apartment, and you can walk in place. I mean, fresh air is nice, but moving is moving. And if you have to do it inside, do it inside. And like they say, just do it. So we need to get started talking about some of these medications that, again, we see advertised all over the TV. And I know there's a lot of drugs for type 2 diabetes, but we're here about, oh, 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 Zambic and all these others with their little ditties and um, people being happily fat. So tell us about these drugs. We'll get started. We have a few minutes before the break, but we can go into it even after the break. But I'd like to know what they are, how they work, and um, and we'll get into, are they just for diabetes? Do you have to keep taking it? Pill, injection, all these things we want to learn about these drugs. So we can get you started a little bit before the break. So, so uh, some years ago, there was a researcher who was looking at the uh, the Gila monster. That's a lizard. That's a venomous lizard, and uh, this researcher uh, discovered a substance in the saliva of the Gila monster that seemed to, uh, in animals, lower glucose, and one thing led to another. And they and Eli Lilly uh, and another company there was a company called Amelin back then, and uh, Eli Lilly collaborated to uh, produce this substance uh, for glucose control. Uh, and it turns out it was called it was called Bieta at that time, and it was a shot taken twice a day. It had uh, nausea, vomiting as side effects. And the way that medicine worked, and this was the first in this class of drugs for managing diabetes. So uh, one needs to know that when we all eat, there's release of a substance uh, from our intestine called uh, glucagon-like peptide 1, GLP-1. And that substance gets into the bloodstream, uh, tells us to make less glucagon, which is a hormone that brings our sugar up. So we don't want as much of that. It That GLP-1 substance made in our intestine also makes us make insulin. It slows emptying of our stomach and it reduces appetite. So what that first version of that synthetic substance, which was originally uh, figured out from this Gila monster, uh, that that original substance was a version, a modification of that particular protein called GLP-1. And it was a shot taken twice a day, and it had these effects on glucose control, and it tended to reduce appetite also, so people lost some weight. Since then, the medications have been fine-tuned, and we can stop there, or I can go on. 
Well, why don't we stop there and then we'll get more into the newer medications. I love it. A heel monster. Who knew? So after the break, we'll get into more details about these medicines and also about diet, nutrition, and kind of some of the core things that we need to do to stay healthy. I just want to thank everybody for listening to America Out Loud Pulse. As you know, we are always a beat ahead. We've got our free apps on Apple, Android, and Alexa, and you can hear Pulse every weekday at 5 p.m. with an encore at 11 p.m. and on iHeartRadio at 8 a.m. the next morning. You can listen on our media player from any web browser anywhere in the world. One thing I love about the show is they go direct to podcast in 24 hours. And the episodes are on lots of podcast networks, Apple, Spotify, Pandora, TuneIn, Stitcher, iHeart, to name a few. So make it easy. Bookmark americaoutloud.news forward slash pulse. My favorite thing about the show is how it's made up. I've got a different doctor on every night. I'm on on Monday, Dr. Marilyn Singleton. Tuesdays, we've got Dr. Jordan Vaughn and Dr. Stuart Tankersley. Wednesday, Dr. Peter McCulloch. Thursday, Dr. Peter Bregan and Ginger Ross Bregan. And Fridays with Dr. Harvey Reich. And if that's not enough for you, we have Nurses Out Loud Monday through Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern. So I urge you to listen, sometimes more medicine, sometimes more politics, but always interesting. AmericaOutloud.news is beaten to the pulse of our nation We know when you're angry, troubled, misled, joyful, and thankful. We know you because we are you. Join us as we explore the most important issues of our time. America Out Loud Talk Radio. It's a fight for the soul of humanity. natural colon cleanse. It's the ultimate digestive tune-up with oxy powder. It's crafted to alleviate the discomfort of gas, bloating, and occasional constipation. There's a reason why oxy powder is our number one seller. It worked. Go to americaoutloud.shop and get 15% off using the code OUTLOUD. Global healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. The buildup of spike proteins is dangerous to your health. Global Healing's Foreign Protein Cleanse detoxes your body, removing the spike proteins, allowing your body to repair from within. Formulated by Dr. Edward Group and by Dr. Brian Artis, Foreign Protein Cleanse targets and detoxes spike proteins in the body. Go to americaoutloud.shop and get 15% off using the code OUTLOUD. Global healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. Dr. Weiss, before the break, you had told us the history of these GLP 
one, I guess that's GLP-1 drugs for diabetes type 2. Can you tell us about where they've developed uh, since Gila Monster Venom? So since then, there's a there's a once a week version of that original version. Uh, that's not used that much now. Uh, and then we we have uh, other agents that are still bind to that that work in that same way that bind to this the receptor or work in the same fashion as GLP one does. But again, they're modified uh, chemically. Basically, it's again proteins are building made of building blocks called amino acids. Well, what they what they've done when they've designed these molecules, they've modified a few or, or changed a few amino acids and done a couple of other things that make it so that uh, the medication lasts for a week. So normally, our own body's GLP one lasts ninety seconds. So that's why the medications aren't identical to our own body's GLP-1 because it would last night. We'd have to have an intravenous infusion all the time. So that's not going to work. So what they've done was by modifying it, it's uh, it hangs around. It's, it's not broken down in the same fashion as GLP-1 is. And so it can be given once weekly. And so those, those are the uh, medications that are... Um, Dulaglutide, which is marketed as Trulicity, or semaglutide, which is marketed as Rebelsis in the oral version. That has that's a pill once a day. It's a little bit of a nuisance to take it because it has to be taken an empty stomach, but uh, it, that's a once a day pill, and it's the same medicine, however, as the once a week Ozempic. Now. All those three drugs, Trulicity, shot once a week, injection once a week, Ozempic once a week, and Rebelsis once a day are approved for diabetes. There's uh, an older drug, which um, is used less now, it's called Victoza, that's Liraglutide, but that's given daily. That was also studied for weight and so they approve, the FDA does this. They make you, if you use it for a different purpose, you have to change the name. So Saxenda is the same as Victoza. They're once a week shots, uh, shots and Saxenda is for weight. Wegovy, W-E-G-O-V-Y, is the same medicine as Ozempic. They're both semaglutide. And... So see, the challenge is to get, because these drugs are pricey and they work for weight, uh, the, and most insurances don't cover weight loss drugs, there's things that we'd like to be able to, in people who have diabetes, if it's approved for diabetes and they're struggling with their weight, then you're getting benefit from weight loss for the drug for diabetes like ozempic and trulicity but if the person doesn't have diabetes and their insurance doesn't cover the weight loss drug like wigovi or saxenda then then they then what do people do so that's where 
these compounded pharmacies are getting into the action. Well, it, you know, it's very interesting because whenever we get into these medical discussions, I, of course, always have to throw my health policy politics in there. But when you get third parties involved, look at what happens. And I'm sure people are sitting there and believe me, my whole career, there have been times when you'd want to you you feel like making up a diagnosis just so insurance will pay for it and have a surgeon tell you, can't you say he had an arrhythmia? You know, and like, no, I can't, you know. And right. as much as I that went out, patient surgery started and the surgeon just didn't feel that comfortable letting some 70-year-old person go home after their hernia operation. You know, but we can't say something went wrong with the anesthetic just so he can stay in the hospital. And I'm sure you feel that way, you know, you'd love to be able, you know, to fudge and say, yeah, he's got a touch of diabetes, so insurance would pay for the drug. And it's, it just makes me sick that insurance payment kind of rule our treatments. And it just shouldn't be that way. So there's my pitch for getting rid of these third parties out of medicine. And have some competition. Right. And if you didn't have them really, and people had to pay for the meds, the meds wouldn't be so expensive. They're expensive because of third parties paying for them, I think. And of course, you know, so people say, oh, they can get this in Mexico and they can get it in Canada for lower price. We're who are they jack up the price in the United States and we're subsidizing these other countries. Well, that's right. You know, and I look at these drugs and various other healthcare products, including our services, that they're like college tuition. College tuition goes up because they're student loans. If their student loans didn't abound when I was in college the way it is now, but because it's so called free money, which isn't really free, they beef up the tuition and they do the same thing with these drugs. Exactly. Exactly. So, well, one of the one of the things that's so good about having you is that you know a lot about nutrition, which is sorely lacking in medical school education even these days. And we have to talk about what what do we do to avoid having to be on these drugs? Obviously, sometimes it's unavoidable, but so many medical problems go back to that old adage you are what you eat so let's talk a bit about diet and nutrition yes so so whenever i, I see a person who's where we're we, we're addressing weight uh, i ask them about their diet and when do they eat how many times do they eat the nature of their food uh, are they drinking calories do they feel like they need to eat a certain number of meals a day? Um, are they waking up in the middle of the night to eat? What is their exercise? And so with regard to that, the guidance I give is I encourage people not to eat if they're not hungry, which may sound like novel, uh, but some people think they have to, for example, eat three meals a day, 
And there's also there's also this misconception of to lose weight, you should try to eat three six times a day, like three meals and three snacks. And that's been clearly shown to be a good way to gain weight. So the less you eat, the less. So in terms of meal frequency, two or three times a day is best, and it's perfectly fine to skip a meal. So we should never encourage people to eat when they're not hungry. And that is really, I just have to break in and say, I love hearing that. I love hearing you say that because too many times people are feel kind of forced to eat. Mm -hmm. And then if there, if a person is on medication that might make their blood sugar low, insulin or certain older pills for diabetes and they skip a meal and they get a low sugar that means not that they shouldn't skip the meal that's the wrong conclusion the conclusion is they need a modification of their medicine they either should not be on a medicine that makes them low or if they're on insulin their their insulin approach uh kind of program regimen needs to be modified they should not just like anyone whether they're on insulin or not if they have don't have diabetes you can skip a meal without diabetes if a person has diabetes and can't skip a meal they need better treatment they should be able to skip a meal so that's a a general principle one is i and then i tell people don't drink calories so uh juices and sugar sweetened pop that's a good way to jack up your sugar and it's a good way to gain weight so some of the weight gain that or an obesity we've seen over the years is uh, the increased consumption of sugar sweetened beverages uh regular pop lots of juices it's just it's bad it's puts makes fatty liver and it increases abdominal girth and it makes you gain weight Well, that's the other thing I see all the time in the grocery store, people, you know, with racks of soda pop Mm -hmm. on the carts. And I'll tell you something that years ago I started drinking just so it wasn't always just plain water. Some of those fizzy waters, there's several brands that have a touch of flavor to it and and it gives you, uh, it quenches your thirst to have some fizzy water instead of just plain water. But uh, I agree with you about drinking the calories. There's also misconceptions about um, what are called non-nutritive sweeteners. So those are things like Splenda, NutraSweet. And and, and despite the, um, was a World Health Organization, which is not a trustworthy source of medical information, by the way. Here, here. Um, yeah, uh, they uh, said something about those non-nutritive sweeteners, but the the best data on non-nutritive sweeteners, again, Splenda, NutraSeed, those kinds of things, it, it which are in diet beverages, is that they're perfectly fine. They don't make you gain weight. They're not. They're not um, going to raise your glucose. They don't increase appetite. There's more studies being done on them, and they're far better for anyone than a sugar-sweetened beverage. So I encourage that. And then I also talk to people about time-restricted feeding. So that's a little bit like intermittent fasting. And uh, this was 
uh, an approach that many uh, many people took before the medical establishment kind of caught on because they said they, they poo-pooed it. They said, oh, no, there's no good evidence for this. Well, it turns out a lot of people did it, and it worked fine, and it's very safe. And we're talking about just uh, not eating after dinner and going at least 12 hours before your first calories. And that reduces inflammation, and a lot of people will find that they lose weight with it because they're not eating from dinner to bedtime, which is a lot of calories. Well, because it's usually dessert. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I I confess. <laughs> yeah. but it's hard to get started. You say, I'll have a little bit of this, and then it becomes a whole meal from dinner, dinner to bedtime. <laughs> so, so that also will help morning glucoses usually and can help with weight. Uh, so those are just some uh, general principles. A lot of patients find very refreshing to be told that. And, uh, that they don't have to eat, they don't have to eat breakfast, it's okay to skip a meal, and then these other concepts. Um, and then, of course, I talk about exercise. Uh, that exercise is, for many people, it's, they're not doing anything, so just getting them to do something, even if it's walking for 10 minutes three times a week, uh, that's helpful. Aerobic exercise is important, but also muscle toning is of benefit also for those people, you know, those people, some people can't do their knees hurt so much. They can't do walking. So they can do some uh, light weights for their upper body. And uh, in, at, at first. Well, do you have any uh, advice or comments on some of these diets that they have the Mediterranean diet and what's the fast, which is supposed to be for high blood pressure, you know, paleo, all these, are these fads or what's something basic that everybody can do in our last couple of minutes? Yeah. Yeah. So there's, there's a lot of studies been that have looked at this question of what's the best diet and generally, there's two concepts that come out of those studies. One is the best diet is the one that works best for you, that you can stick to. That's number one. And the second thing is most people fatigue. They tire of a particular dietary intervention. So they have to change to something else. So that's a, those are the, the, the key concepts. Now, you can there's there are there are low carb diets and that if someone has said that really worked well for them they could do that and they can they might do it for two three weeks and then they get off of it then they might just watch portions and because these you know really really low carb diets they're not practical long term people just can't adhere to them um and that may that may not be the best diet for them. They may find, well, it really didn't work for me. I I uh, what worked for me is just watching portions. We we know there's no you can you can lose weight on any diet if you're if you're counting calories and you're watching portions. And that's what you know these the nutrisystems have, they'll have any food. You can eat all these different foods, but the portion they give you is so small, <laughs> and that's how they're restricting. And that's how they're reducing calorie intake. So the challenge, that's the challenge because then we go to a restaurant and they give us these huge portions. And the problem is food tastes good. So we keep eating it. You know, so there are some behavioral methods you can use that are also useful. And I talk to people, 
Don't shop when you're hungry. Stick to a list. You know, if you're going to buy junk, buy it just a little bit. Don't be, don't go to these big box stores and, oh, it's a great deal. Let's get 100 Snickers. It's a good deal. No, just get one Snickers and bring that home. You know, so some of these are, are behavioral tricks that, that are useful. Don't drive past the donut store. Take another route to work so you're not seeing the donut store. <laughs> These are really good tips. And boy, if we had another hour, I'm sure you could tell us a whole lot more. So you've got to promise me you'll come back because I just have to thank you for all this information. Thank you. Well, I hope everybody has, well, I guess we can call it enjoyed. I mean, none of us like to give up our food, but uh, hey, we sometimes we just have to for health. So thanks again, Dr. Weiss, for coming to the show. Thank you. And thank everybody, each and every one of you, for listening to America Out Loud Pulse. We've had our email feature, which has been very popular, where you can just go down on the page that advertises the the uh, show. And there's a, a little email link you can fill in. First names are fine. Ask a question of the guest or the host, and we'll get an answer back to you. We also have a brand new feature. I guess it's not quite so new anymore. AmericaOutloud.shop. And what this is, is our shopping site. And it's got products that we talk about. You can get Cofix RX there. It's got books by some of the guests we've had on the show, as well as other interesting books. And we've got a discount code. If you put in out loud, you'll receive a discount when you make your purchase. So we've got a lot of stuff out there for you. And I just can't thank you enough for listening. So like I always say, whether you agree or have other opinions, please share the show. And until next week, say it loud. I'm free and I'm proud.